I'm Anna Webb. And I'm Mike Hansen. Welcome to A Dog's Life. Hey, Billy. A Dog's Life with Anna Webb is one of your favorite podcasts, and it should be because you're the co-producer. You often like to sit on my lap while I'm recording the show or get your squeaky toys out and distract me when I should be listening to the interviews. Anyway, as we know from listening to the podcast, that Anna knows absolutely everything there is to know about dogs. And I would say that Anna loves Prudence and Binksy and dogs in general more than anything or anyone else in the world. But we've never actually sat down and listened to Anna's story and her love for dogs from start to finish. So as producer, I thought, as it's Valentine's Day, let's do something different. So here we have Anna Webb's Valentine's Love Letters to Her Dog. Hi, Anna. Hi, Mike. Welcome to A Dog's Life. Thank you very much, Mike. We've been wanting to have you on the show for ages now, Anna. Yes, well, I'm so pleased. Um, being my producer, it's fun to do yeah. a behind the scenes, right? Well, it is because a lot of the feedback I've been getting over the past year is that people really love the show. We, we cover a lot of great subjects and obviously a lot of people follow you or know your, your background and you touch on things about your personal experience with dogs and your, and your expertise and all that. But it occurred to me that you've never really sat down, at least here in this form, to actually spell out from start to present day what that expertise is. And I thought... As it's Valentine's Day, it'd be nice just to have a little Valentine's love letter from Anna to the dog world. <laughs> I think it's a brilliant idea. Yes. Yeah, so where to begin? I guess at the beginning, right? I think that's a good place to start. So you've, you've had dogs in your life all your life, I take it. I have. I was blessed, okay, because I grew up in Shropshire and my dad, who's a retired army officer, was the secretary of the Shropshire branch of the RSPCA when I was really young. He'd owned dogs all his life. So our first dog, our first family dog was Tina, who is an English Springer Spaniel, a rescue as she didn't make the grade to be a working dog as she was gun shy. She had noise sensitivity that we now call it. Wait, 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 wait a minute. So she had noise sensitivity and yet she lived with you. <laughs> Prudence, my current dog actually has got noise sensitivity and she lives with me. What are you implying, Mike? I'm, that I'm implying gobby. nothing. Yeah, not, not, <laughs> at all. not at all. Anyway, so sorry to interrupt. So, so yes, your dad was uh, quite a big wig in the, um, the RSPCA. That's it. I mean, he, he loved animals. He was the one that took me for my riding lessons. He'd saddle up my pony for me, watch the lessons, comment afterwards, be quite strict. We never had an awful lot in common as um, I'm quite a pacifist. And, well, and, you know, he fought in the Second World War. He was old. So that's why he's no longer with us. And he was very brave and he got the military cross and he was very right wing about everything I guess and Anna came out as quite a rebel child I guess but loving animals also so yeah our, our home was filled with tortoises goldfish gerbils my sister had a chinchilla for a while and so I guess that gave you not only a, a love of dogs or animals as I guess a lot of kids and anyone who, who grew up with dogs had just a, a general sense of or a love of dogs but you I, I guess you got a more of an insight also into animal welfare which kind of maybe put you a bit ahead of other kids I don't know if it put me ahead of other kids it made me really realize how dark sometimes the human condition could be and I was really young so I was about eight when I'd hear dad and, and, and friends that would come over you know for dinner parties and what have you talking about current cases of dogs all sorts of animals that were needing help and I, I really couldn't understand it and my, my interest in dogs was fueled particularly perhaps by this really and seeing in them this truth I, I'd prefer as a child just to hang out with dogs we might visit you know, cousins and family and I wouldn't really be too interested in chatting with with the people in the home but I'd hang out with the dogs so I, I was lucky I used to spend a lot of time as a kid as well with my mum's best friend 
who's like my auntie in inverted commas, and she was a massive dog person as well. So it wasn't only my dad who influenced me, but it was my auntie Pip. And every year I'd go to Crufts with auntie Pip because her sister bred Cavalier King Charles Spaniels. And my best kind of pen pal as an eight-year-old is this amazing woman called Anne Winyard, who is very, very famous in the Tibetan breeds. And a long story short, it meant that uh, my mom actually bought a puppy, Tibetan Spaniel. There was a very rare breed at the time, and they still are pretty rare, but then they were really, really rare. And my little dog called Potter lived with Auntie Pip. And so I'd visit every weekend and spend the weekends with my Auntie Pip so I could be with my Tibetan Spaniel. And this led to a massive love of this this breed and all the Tibetan breeds and a real insight as well, I guess, into that world of, of breeds. I became fascinated. So as time went by, all my projects at school were dog related, whether it was art, whether it was English, all about dogs. I, I was known really as a bit of this dog person even then. And that's when I would, would have been about 11. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the one thing that I, I've always been impressed with you uh, amongst many things, but is is your kind of encyclopedic knowledge about breeds, just not identifying, but also knowing their history and why they were bred that way. Like I, I had no idea until I met you that poodles were actually German. Yeah, that's right. They were, the, they were called a poodle hunt and, and they were gun dogs. So poodles are actually very highly tuned hunting dogs, although their looks might deceive that. But that's why sometimes, you know, in recent times with these designer crossbreeds like the cockapoo, people can find them quite hard to handle. People think they are teddy bears because they look like teddy bears, but actually they've got a very highly tuned working dog. And so often for first time dog owners, that could, that causes problems. Mm-hmm. And okay, just briefly still in your childhood. So you, you, you started with Tina. How many dogs did you have growing up when you, when you lived at home and, and, or did you have several like that you would foster because your dad would bring home the RSPCA temporarily or did you have succession of dogs? We had succession of dogs. Dad was very much, um, he loved dogs so much that he believed you could only have one dog at a time to really do justice and give the dog the attention that it needed. So Tina lived a long time actually. She passed when I was about 16 and my dad being old school, he believed that as I often say, that the hair of the dog cure has got nothing to do with hangovers, but everything to do with mending a broken heart. So we rushed up to the local rescue, which was the National Canine Defense League at the time. Dad loved gun dogs. That was his thing. And so they had a, a, a Cocker Spaniel there that was actually finding it quite hard to find a home because this Cocker Spaniel had this condition that's still called Cocker Rage. Nobody really knows why some Cockers do have this, but this one had obviously been dumped because she had it and no one could get near this beautiful golden Cocker Spaniel. So I remember this day very much. I actually spoke about this in my um, epitaph to my dad at his funeral. I, I actually said, remember the day we went to pick up Minnie? Because what happened was dad tried to go near Minnie. She wasn't called Minnie then. And, you know, the growl, the snarl, you know, mm. it was definitely don't come any nearer or actual peril. So dad said, come on, Anna, come on, you have a go. Because dad was really keen to save this dog because she was finding it hard to get rehomed. And I think her future was looking a bit bleak, shall we say. You couldn't get near her. So I just held my hand out to this cocker and she came towards me and she licked my hand. So on the way home, I was determined to call her Poppy, but she really didn't seem to respond to that word at all. And I thought, gosh, you remind me a bit of Minnie Ha Ha with your really long ears. So I named her Minnie and she loved it. And we were inseparable, inseparable until I went away to uh, university. And I don't think she ever really recovered from me doing that, which is a great shame. She, she didn't live to a really old age. She was 12. And it broke my heart when, you know, my parents told me that they were taking her to the vet and they rang me and I was at work and everyone was very kind at work and coped with me breaking down as I felt I'd let her down somehow. Yeah. 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 I know if I was uh, a similar age with my dog, I had a dog. Well, I had two. I had one very briefly at the age of five that mysteriously ran away when my parents realized that I was backing out of my, my pledge to look after the dog and clean up after it. 
which no five-year-old would ever do anyway. <laughs> and then when I was eight, I got a, a little poodle called Smudgy and he lived to be 17, but it was, yeah, I was at university when, when I got the call that he'd finally had, had given up. We didn't put him down. We probably should have. I think we're probably a bit cruel by keeping him alive the last couple of years because he was in not good shape. I love that you had a poodle. I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah. That's so great. I love, you know, I love poodles very much and they're yeah, so underestimated. He, he was, he was a smart dog and he was, he was small, but we didn't give him that classic ooh, uh, sort of French revolution cut or whatever you want to call it. He, he was just a little <laughs> ball of fluff. He wouldn't really know he's a poodle because we didn't cut him like that. Yeah. He lived a good old, uh, good old uh, time. I'll tell you that over a pint when we can actually get together and have him. but he was, he was quite a, quite a dog. But so you, you go off to university and as a single woman not keeping dogs or you're not able to keep dogs or or what oh then back then i mean we're talking <laughs> i don't want to give my age away but you know we're talking this was 1987 and my degree was a psychology degree at oxford poly very proud actually i went to oxford poly in the heyday you know because it was the coolest polytechnic in the world to go to a, a lot of fun uh, it wasn't really the right place to to have a dog lecture theaters buildings were not dog friendly back then apart from from uh, assistance dogs and even then it was still the early days of all of this being mandatory so no and then left Polly headed straight to London jumped on the nine-to-five thing and again absolutely no rented accommodation would even consider being dog friendly and I was busy I was young really having a dog at that that point would have been irresponsible yeah yeah well as we know and as it's come up on the podcast Quite a lot. It's a big responsibility, not to be one to be taken lightly when you when you take on a dog. So you spend your misspent youth living the life in London uh, without a dog, but at some point you do. And again, you've, you've this has come up in the podcast a few times. At the um, tender age of thirty-seven, you finally decided it was time to get a dog. And but there's a bit of a story as to as to why. Do you want to just tell us about okay. that? Well, yeah. Okay. So at that point I was living in um, a flat that was dog friendly. So there was a possibility it wasn't owned by a landlord with a no pet clause. So that was one reason. The other reason was I was living on Lamb's Conduit Street. And what I noticed, I'd moved there from Hoxton before it was super, super trendy. There were dogs everywhere. And it kind of just made me think, you know what, living with a dog in London is actually perfect you can do it because for some reason I had this thing in my head where I just thought no dogs need country they need space to run but it seemed fine there were so many dogs on Lambs Conduit Street all sorts of funny French bulldogs that lived on the street and a dog called Bill who belonged to our next door neighbor Bill was a miniature bull terrier and I fell in love with Bill the personality of this dog was something I'd only seen a bit with a dog that my parents had rescued who was called Jess, who was a Staffordshire Bull Terrier, who began my interest in bull breeds. This is way before they were popular and having a Staffordshire Bull Terrier in the country was most odd because you tend to have your gun dogs and your terriers. And dad obviously fell in love with Jess and Jess had a huge personality. That began my kind of path towards the bull breed. Then Bill just stole my heart and often we'd babysit Bill. He'd come around for Sunday lunch. I'd walk Bill because I was working from home at the time. I'd gone freelance already. And he was just a joy. I remember taking him up to the local park that's just beyond Great Ormond Street Hospital. It was a really sunny day. And I thought, oh God, this will be fun. I'm going to have an ice cream. I'm going to have a Mr. Whippy ice cream and share it with Bill sat on a bench. And this was great. This was the best thing I'd done in years. So I told dad, dad was still alive at this time, all about Bill and he you know he said Anna you really should think about getting a dog and I said I know I really should and then sadly dad passed and it was mm. a sudden passing I mean he was 81 and, and so on but it rocked me I think I I'm one of these people I can't cope with death very well I don't think anyone can but I really really went down because of 
bit of our um, dramatic relationship that we'd had over the years. And the, the main common denominator between me and my dad was our love of dogs. Mm. So Mike, my boyfriend at the time, another Mike, not you, obviously, Mike, um, said, don't say, listen. Don't say that. You're going to start rumors. <laughs> he said, let's get a dog. And he loved Bill as well. Mm. So it was a natural thing to choose a miniature bull terrier and they were of course very difficult to find being a vulnerable british breed facing extinction but molly came onto my radar this was really also before the internet so this meant a lot of phone calls talking to experts in the breed being passed from pillar to post some people might have puppies coming soon and then you find that they weren't having any puppies being grilled like you wouldn't believe as to why i and worthy <laughs> to own a miniature bull terrier, but passed past the tests and little moles arrived shortly after. She was my birthday present to myself in 2002. And then getting Molly kind of, I guess, opens up a whole new chapter for your life. And, and you've often said dogs represent different chapters in their life. So if, if Tina was your, your childhood, Molly is, is certainly your adulthood proper, and but also really your career, I guess. So you get Molly and, and you have this great life with her. You went to Paris with her and visit the pet cemetery and places like that. We did so much. Yes. Getting Molly back into my life. The first thing I, you know, I had to train her. This was so exciting. There weren't many dog trainers around. See in 2002, the world was very different in London where it came to dogs. And I'm, I'm really pleased that I experienced that. A world without any dog walkers, without any dog creches. There was the pet shops weren't lovely glamorous boutiques with grooming salons attached to them. They were covered in sawdust. They had goldfish in the corner that didn't look very well at all. The choice of products was very, very limited. Uh, at the time I was going to Paris for work and I'd stock up on collars and leads and gorgeous accessories in Paris that actually had some. We didn't have any. Maybe Harrods might have had a few. It was the time when Harrods were still still selling puppies. They, they don't anymore. But it was a very different world. There weren't, pubs weren't dog friendly. We had a pub that was dog friendly, actually, uh, not far from Lambs Conduit Street in the heart of Bloomsbury. It was called the Duke, hidden behind um, these little windy streets. I don't know if it's still there, actually. Brilliant. So that's the only place that we went. So it, it was very, very different to how it is now. So yes, I threw myself back into the world of dogs. And that began really going to dog shows with Molly. She was a pedigree, she was kennel club registered. And it was a baptism of fire, but it was a distraction. And it was a way of totally snapping myself out of the routine that I was in. And that's a process that is supposed to help with grief. So mm. you're meeting new people, expanding your horizons, really. And it just drove me more and more into the fascination of dog training. Having a psychology degree, it really helps because I did study behavioral psychology and BK Skinner's like the main psychologist that really looked into training animals um, and coined the term behavioral psychology. Then how did you get into integrative vet therapies? Yeah, well, that was quite a few years after. There's so many years to talk about here. <laughs> that was quite a few years after, after Molly and I had decided to go into doing doggy dancing competitions, being at Crufts flying the flag for her breed because mm -hmm. what was going on at that time was um, a lot of discrimination against bull breeds that that was really really brewing well, that's um, around the time that you know we've got the scare of pit bulls particularly and yeah. dangerous dogs act and stuff like that yeah that all happened yep in 1991 and people were quite afraid of these types of dogs and so i made it my my mission to be an ambassador for bull breeds and that's one thing Molly really, really did. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so my study with um, the College of Integrative Veterinary Therapies came about in 2011 after in 2010, Molly being diagnosed with an undiagnosable problem that was suspected bladder cancer. Now this totally shook me. This was the end of the world. Molly was only eight. This was not supposed to happen. This was not going to happen. This was just not how it was 
going to be. So it was at this point that I kind of saw the limitations, if you like, of the conventional vet profession. And I demanded a referral to the holistic vet called Richard Allport, who's very famous and he's not too far from London in Potter's Bar. So he was easy to get to. And it started a great relationship with Richard. I learned so much from Richard. At this point, you know, Mike, I didn't know what homeopathy was. Mm. I'll be honest, I didn't know what it was. I had no idea how it would work, if it would work. But all I knew was I felt that the limitations proposed by my GP vets and the specialists I saw, as it were, on the other side of the fence, simply wasn't enough. It was a tiny bottle of painkillers, basically. And yeah. I thought, no, 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 we're going to need more than this. And we did need more than this. And this journey with Richard inspired me to study more. So that's what I did and came out with a qualification to enable me to be a canine nutritionist and speak uh, authoritatively about nutrition in dogs, about therapy in dogs, about all behavioral aspects in, in, in dogs specifically, and, and environmental issues, of course, and, and, and various environmental stressors, including medication and vaccines that can if used in excess, damage your dog's health. Yeah. And aside from getting, um, you know, very knowledgeable and building up your career in that way, having Molly and, and getting into the dog world in this way has also led to some glamorous things. I was the start of your broadcasting career. So through your ownership of Molly, you meet Joe, develop the Barking Blondes on the, what was then Barking at the Moon. Uh, Tell us a little bit about, I know you and Joe talk, touched on this when we spoke to Joe before Christmas, but from just a little bit of background of how, how you met through Telly yeah. and how your, how your partnership developed. Okay, so back then I, I was running quite a busy little uh, PR consultancy. So I, I noticed a journalistic request come in, a journal request come in asking for a case study of somebody who believed that their dog was their, their fur kid, a mm. term that begun to be banded about but people really laughed at it at this but this would have been 2009 this really this anthropomorphism was going a little bit too far so people were quite cynical about this phrase I jumped this opportunity anyway I basically became the headline uh, case study of Joe's documentary uh, all about fur kids on BBC Inside Out mm. so the filming was all set up I was really excited about this because I really wanted to share how I felt about Molly because I, I decided really I, I never really wanted to have children mm. and Molly was for me my surrogate child in so much as the amount of love, care, mm. my whole nurturing was directed to Molly and I really don't think there's anything wrong with that. And so Joe came around to my big flat that I owned then, wish I'd never sold it. Uh, <laughs> and we just got on like a house on fire. At this point, Matilda, her, her bulldog, had just arrived. She would have been, honestly, 14 weeks old at this point. She wasn't in, then in the filming. And we filmed with Moles and the cameramen. They were so funny. I remember they wanted to move my fish tank because I've always had a love of fish, actually, as well. And I was just freaking out. It's like, you cannot move my fish tank. <laughs> um, so the fish tank caused them great problems. But we filmed and it was fun. And Molly did some of her dance routine tricks and I absolutely loved it but Joe and I did really hit it off I also felt this very strong energy between us and it was that day I gave Joe as a present for doing the filming I said Joe please listen to me on this take this and I gave her a frozen slab of raw green tripe I said trust me this is what you need to feed Matilda on and anyway Matilda to this day still does eat raw green tripe yeah we'll come to raw food a bit later, but let's talk a bit more about the broadcasting. So you're, you're, you're on BBC London with Joe, you've done this documentary with her, but this also leads to a regular slot with Ellen Tishmarsh. Yes, that was a couple of years after doing Barking at the Moon, which really hit the airwaves. You know, we're broadcasting at night. You know, Mike, I know you understand this because you've been a producer at the BBC as well. So we're on at night and radio is this wonderful medium that I absolutely love. And nighttime broadcasting is very different from daytime broadcasting. Very much. Very much. Very much. And the BBC was really empty and we 
we've got the dogs in the studio, which we did have permission for it. But over the years, we had a few people that moaned about having some sneezing sessions, having gone back into that studio. And there were, there were a couple of weeks where we had to leave the dogs at home. But then we fought back and the dogs remained. And we had this catchphrase, a bit, you know, Alan Partridge, you know how we used to go, aha. Mm. But instead of going, aha, we'd go, woof, woof. Mm. And the show had, I wouldn't say, can he ever feel about it? But it was light. We transcended very topical information, but in an accessible way. That remember, this was 2010 that we started to broadcast Barky at the Moon, and nothing like this had really been done before. So we didn't just go to the default vets to get a vet on to talk about, oh, it's spring, let's all get flea treatments on your dog. It was different to that. We added some color and some flamboyance and some genuine, or perhaps, femininity to, to the mm. world that wasn't intimidating because the world of dogs can be intimidating yeah joe alluded to that in the past hadn't she, she yeah know, absolutely a, a dark side uh, to it yeah there, <laughs> there is a bit of a dark side to it I, I just guess you know everyone's got their opinions that's that's the point i know that the barking at the moon has helped and encouraged a lot of dog ownership in london and i think that's only a good thing as the companionship of a dog is something my dad said <laughs> you can never go wrong with the love of a dog that's mm. something he said to me when i was really really young and i believe we domesticated the dog to fulfill the one thing that the human condition lacks, which is unconditional love. I really go back to that every day that that thought comes into my head because it is completely true. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then, so how did you meet uh, and get involved with the lovely and talented uh, Alan Tishmarsh? Well, so what happened was we got a book deal. What happened was actually we were the star guests on a series that got a bit criticised. It was a Sky One series called A Different Breed, like a different breed of person. Mm -hmm. And it was heralded to be the big, big, big reality show of the century. It got panned by the critics, mm -hmm. absolutely panned because I think they stepped too far. They actually gave the dogs voices. So Molly and Matilda spoke, but it was hilarious. Someone like me, I absolutely loved it. And we didn't know the voices that they'd given to Molly and Matilda until we went to the screening, the premiere screening. Well, I was in pieces with laughter because Molly was terribly posh, terribly brainy. And Matilda, she spoke like this. She was right. a bit West Country and not uh, the sharpest knife in the box. And um, Molly teased Matilda and put her down and be oh, don't be so ridiculous Matilda you know and it, I, I absolutely loved it and they'd crack jokes I thought it was great but I think it was a bit I think now it would work but back in 2010 it was too soon so so we did that and then on the back of that we got a book deal which was brilliant the Barking Blondes which talked about the radio show at night the quirks of airing a broadcasting house late at night when there is a definite feel about it I feel very honored to have experienced it and the, the book was a massive success I and mean, it sold out. We got over 55 star reviews on Amazon. You can't get an original copy of the hardback now. They're all secondhand. You can still get it on Kindle, however. I think it's 79p. <laughs> and then what happened was we decided not to have a book launch. Joe and I, being quite media savvy, we thought, no, let's ask the publisher to put the money into advertising of some description. So what they did, because we were obviously on BBC Radio London, they did massive poster adverts on the underground. And they were everywhere. And we're talking at some big stations, including Oxford Circus, Waterloo, all over, all over the underground. And oh boy, did that get noticed. And it got noticed by one of the producers of the Titchmarsh show oh, who right. was looking for an animal feature to add to the next series. So we were contacted by this producer in the July and our book was launching at the time. It was go, go, go. And we went for an interview and we were told we were going to find out their, their decision in two days. Meanwhile, Joe and I had to zoom up to Norfolk to do an interview on BBC Radio Norfolk, which was great actually because
because yeah, we actually pretended we wrote some of the book in Norfolk. It's a bit naughty, isn't it? But mm. um, we, we made for a good interview on BBC Norfolk and we were driving back. It was my birthday, so it would have been the um, 10th of July. And Joe was saying, look, we mustn't get disappointed, Anna, because we, we're not going to get this gig, are we? And I said, oh, I don't know, Joe, but probably not. Anyway, we, um, we got the gig. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, so early that September, we, we aired, gosh, to say I was terrified. Um, it was an understatement, really. But we rocked. The gallery loved us. And by the end of the first series, it was confirmed they wanted us for the second series and a third series. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like, wow, this is great. So how many episodes is that altogether? Then? God, I, overall, I think we did about 48 episodes. Oh, right, yeah. Mm, sometimes we had to do two in one day. Uh, one was a pre-record, but we had to really pretend it was live, obviously. Sure, sure. Back when we could do that. I remember those days. And uh, was, was, it, was it pressure coming up with something new to talk about or do? Like what sort of things? The, the, the clips that I've seen, you're, you're doing a raw food recipe for Alan and things like that. But was it, was it hard to kind of come up with content or were you told what you're going to do? Bit of both. Um, we work with the production team to give them ideas. I think the thing is, you see, unless you know a lot about dogs, it's quite hard to put together either a radio show about dogs or a TV program about mm. dogs, you know. Um, or indeed so- a podcast. Oh, yes, indeed. So, yeah, so we chip in. We, we talked about issues about training. We'd always have a headline news story to discuss at the top of the show. Alan, obviously, you know, the most fantastic presenter, brilliant person. I mean, what a great sense of humor. So it would be, we'd look at issues. So microchipping, for example, mm-hmm. wasn't mandatory when we aired Titchmarsh. It is now. So it was, it was lots of campaigning to make it become mandatory. So we did a microchipping. I can't remember now. You put me on the spot. But yeah, Yes, we, we discussed a lot about diet, a lot about it, uh, dogs in art, dogs in literature. We looked at all animals because we were pet experts on, on the Titchmoss show, not just dog experts. I remember once, I mean, they do say never work with animals and children. And this is where you see Molly really, you know, <laughs> became the ambassador for her breed. Um, and still today, no other miniature bull terrier has matched her because w- what also happened around this time was that Animal Planet contacted me and they were trying to get in touch with me and my internet had gone down okay for two days. And in the end, the journalist, Sadie Nicholas, called me and said, Anna, Animal Planet is screaming at me for you to get back to them. And I said, I can't get back to them. I haven't got any email, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, long story short, this whole crew from Animal Planet flew over from Boston. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and did a whole feature on the miniature bull terrier based around Molly. Oh, it's my proudest moment, proudest moment, I think, still today. It's, it's a wonderful little film. It's on my YouTube channel. I'm so proud of it. As Molly was just different. She was mm. different. She was the most knowing dog. She knew from the moment I went to pick her up, all the way up in Yorkshire, that I'd come to pick her. She knew. She actually got my little rucksack I brought along to carry various paraphernalia along with me for the journey back on the train. And she, she got my rucksack that was pretty heavy and she was tiny and just pulled it along heading towards the breeder's front door. It was as if she was saying, hurry up with your small talk chat. You've given her the money. Let's get out of here now. Let's start our life together. Really? It was just, and I noticed that while I was chatting to the breeder and doing the small talk and I just thought that's funny and then the breeder just said yes but look how strong she is yeah yeah, she was strong but there was more to it than that yeah well and just just on that just briefly this is probably a hard thing to come up with on a spur of the moment but is there a a favorite moment or is there a a certain time of day where you you really look forward to being with Molly was it at night curling up in bed or was it going to the countryside or going to the pub was there something that you just because my favorite time with Billy, and I've mentioned Billy on the, the podcast before, is just him and I walking through Hampstead Heath and, and not always playing with other dogs, just the two of us, you know, sort of exploring. It makes me feel like a kid again, exploring the woods. Is, was it yes. something like that with, with Molly? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, my mom was obviously still in Shropshire. So we'd go to visit my mom. And when we were up there, we'd go to this place called Hormond Hill, where I used to walk the dogs as a child. It's a brilliant play, amazing woodland. And I'd kind of pretend with moles that we were the last of the Mohicans going through this woodland, just me and her. And you'd come across the odd deer there. So it was kind of really, really quite American and Canadian. There's deer, you know, we, we really are the last of the Mohicans. And that kind of really sum me and moles up. I always thought, you know, as long as I've got Molly with me, I'm all right. But otherwise, Molly wasn't really the great sportif. <laughs> she, she really, you know, she wasn't into long walks. She was far more typical of her breed than, say, young Prudence, who's sitting on the chair with me right now, <clears throat> trying to pull me off the chair. But we've got to say we're doing a podcast, Prudence. So Molly was very happy sat on the sofa all day watching daytime TV, if I let her do that, which obviously I didn't let her do. So she was an easier dog really to work with. She loved being beside me in my office at home. She knew when I'd had some good news, she'd join in celebrating. There was something she just knew. She had I believe we were communicating, Molly and I, telepathically from day one, which hopefully you don't mind me segueing here to a man that really has influenced me in the world of dogs. And as you know, Mike, who mm -hmm. I'm going to mention, um, I was very proud that he is still the first episode of A Dog's Life. It is Rupert Sheldrake. And I, I learned about Rupert because I was, at the time, PRing medical detection dogs. I launched that charity back mm. in 2008. And one of the founders was this amazing man called Dr. John Church. And he was, he was lovely, kind of very old fashioned. And he inspired the charity because he really believed dogs could smell the odor of disease. And in pursuing his interest in this, he did meet with Rupert Sheldrake and discussed with him if he really felt the dogs had this capability. And of course, Rupert comes at it from an intuition aspect. So he talks in his own book, Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home, about epilepsy dogs that sense when their owner's going to have an epileptic seizure. Mm. And all of the case studies that founded medical detection dogs, they were all anecdotal stories of dogs that had alerted their owners to cancer, to diabetes, to diseases, mainly cancer, before the doctors had any idea that these people had cancer. So there was something there, and it is their sense of smell that does it. But what's interesting is, is how these anecdotally studied dogs tell notify their owners that something is wrong. Mm. That's where the sixth sense, the emotional intelligence of the whole process comes into play. So he, it was Dr. John Church that said, well, Anna, he spoke like this. He said, Anna, you must have read Sheldrake one day. He said, and I said, no, I haven't. He went, oh my dear, you simply have to get the book, Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home. So I did, I read it and I'm like, oh, I have to get Rupert on Barking at the Moon. So I wrote to him and he said he would join us on air. And that was, yeah, a, a great moment for me. And since then, we've been on air together a few times. And of course, it was an honor that he said I could, you know, join him in his library. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yes. So Very I'm conveniently, you're still around the corner from me, which was uh, the easiest commute I ever had to do. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm jealous you live near Rupert. Yeah, mm. I've, I've actually seen him in the Heath, but that's, an, that's another podcast. Exactly. Anyway, so now, sadly, Molly's no longer with us. And I know that I've had pets myself and some have lived a good old time. And it's really sad when they, when they go after 15, 16 years or, or more. But when they go at a young age or suddenly, that's, that's really, really devastating. But Molly, it, there just wasn't enough time with her, was there? I don't think there's ever enough time with your dog. Mm. And this is something that everyone has to realize and be pretty sanguine about. Molly lived till she was 13. I won't go into all the detail right now. She 
did die younger than she should have done. That's all I'll say. It broke my heart. I fought very much to keep her alive. Certainly everything I learned through Richard Allport and through my study with the College of Integrative Veterinary Therapies, it kept her cancer in remission for five years, which shows that a primary cancer can be kept in remission. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, an incident occurred that triggered her primary cancer to go into uh, the secondary stage. And at that point, really, there is nothing you can do. I did try. I tried really hard. Um, so, yes, she died in my arms at two in the morning on the 1st of July, 2015. The first person I called at two in the morning, well, must have been about half two, was Joe, And she arrived within 45 minutes um, to where I was living at the time in Buckinghamshire in her pajamas, bless Joe, with Matilda. Literally, she was in her pajamas and slippers and had just gotten in the car and drove. So that was a, a sign of a real true friend. Yeah, very much so. So how long after Molly, well, how long were you sort of uh, without a dog before you kind of got back on the, the dog again? Okay, so... I'd already actually taken on board Mr. Binks, who you've met quite a few times. Well, he's the co-presenter, of course. He is the co-presenter. He is. Um, Mr. Binks joined um, the clan in 2014 after Molly had gone and gotten lost in a wheat field, which I didn't even know could happen. Look, I have to accept the fact I really am a townie. How I ever thought I was going to mm. even live in Buckinghamshire, which is hardly super rural, really, was just a crazy idea, a massive mistake. And anyway, Molly managed to get lost in a wheat field for 12 hours. And it was the girl who worked in the local, oh, the whole village came out to try and find her in this wheat field. But it was June and the wheat's really high at this time. And farmers pack wheat into their fields and you go snow blind. You can't see as a human, you know, our, our, our senses are so limited compared to a dog. So it took a working cocker, a working springer actually called Sam to go out on the last search at nine o'clock that night and he found Molly he found Molly and the way that dog worked I remember Joe who was with me at the time exclaiming she'd never seen a working cock with Springer Spaniel work and they're called Springers because they spring and this dog was springing like he never he went up to about six foot I'm not joking and he seemed to to know again, going back to Rupert, what he was doing there. He was driven, driven. He was running through the ditches like he was going to injure himself. He had an urgency about him. He was on it and he was jumping up. And what he saw, because the dog's vision is so different to ours, was that there was a break in the wheat that you couldn't see as a human. And what Molly had been doing for 12 hours was trampling a circle, trampling the wheat down as a, as a way of hopefully signing to people that she was there. And this dog, Sam, spotted the difference in the wheat and took us to Molly pretty much at the last real moment of doing it. So although it was June, it still gets chilly in England um, at night. So, you know, she was pretty cold and she was a bit ill afterwards. And I was beside myself. And I thought at the time, hang on, is this the countryside you know, trying to tell me something, you know, mm. like go back to London. It probably was actually, and I really wish I had done that then. However, I didn't. Anyway, what they say is the way to keep an older dog perky is to bring a young dog into the frame. And I'd always been fascinated by the English Toy Terrier. So again, an old British breed that's facing extinction, actually. And I just love the way they look. I love a pointy ear. Mm. I love dark colored dogs. They're my favorites. And there was little Dexter, he was called. He was looking for a, a forever home. So he joined the clan. Mm. <laughs> he joined the clan in 2014, aged two and a half, with one hip. And again, with my qualifications, I was able to rehabilitate him and you really you wouldn't notice would you mike that he's only no. got one hip no, not at all got... no when he came over that time him and billy were bouncing all over like jumping beans weren't they yes that uh, was your yeah. christmas eve party yeah a couple couple of years ago when we, when mm. we last had christmas yes. um so uh yes yeah, so, well that just a side note that is of all this time that i've known binksy as i call him i had no idea he had a first name named dexter 
I know he did. And I never, I mean, it's an okay name, no offense to anyone mm. listening whose dogs are called Dexter, but I just didn't think it suited him. There, mm. there was something very different about Mr. Binks, which is why the breeder wanted him to be rehomed so he could live as either the only dog or perhaps with one other dog and get lots of attention. It took ages for him to settle in. He was a bit thin. He had some skin problems and his leg was, you know, he was limping on it, carrying it quite a lot. But um, luckily in the Shire, I met this amazing physiotherapist called Sherry Scott, who's very famous in her own right. She has an MBE. She was the animal physio that saved Sefton, the only horse that survived the terrible bombings in Hyde Park, which... Some people listening might remember when Mm. um, the IRA attacked the horses and the scenes on the news were just of these big, amazing black horses just lying flat in Hyde Mm. Park, which Mm. I remember seeing that on the news and being really, really distressed. So Sherry helped a lot with both Dexter at the time and with Molly. But yeah, I was never happy with his name. And it was like, well, what should I call you? And one day it just came to me. I just... I really don't know how this happened, but I called him Binks. And and because he's a little oddball, he's Mr. Binks. Hmm. And then latterly, I found out that there is a Mr. Binks in one of the Dickens books. And what with him being a Victorian dog, I just thought, yes, this is it. So he is Mr. Binks and he loves his name. Yeah, yeah. Well, it does suit him, as you say. And well, we'll we'll, we'll talk a bit more about names. Well, it's a nice segue because Molly's successor is Prudence. And we'll just, just, before we get talking about prudence, let's talk a bit about names because one of the things that has come up in the podcast, and we had this with Simon Garfield a couple of weeks ago and with Dr. Mark the Vet about our sort of really, our relationship really, really with dogs growing over the years. And one of the best ways of illustrating that is the names we give them. Because when I was a, a kid, as I said, my dog, when I was a boy, it was named Smudge. And you gave dogs named Smudge, Spot, Fido and all that. Now we give dogs human or what we well yeah human names. So I've got Billy, and you've got you had Molly, and now you've got Prudence. So giving them human names is, is kind of an indication of um, this relationship that has grown and intensified over the years. But Prudence is quite an old-fashioned name, so you've kind of <laughs> turned it on its head in a way. Why 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 is she called Prudence? Well, she's called Prudence because really bull terriers, I think, need to have an old English name. So that's why Molly was called Molly. Molly is quite a you know, back then in 2002 it wasn't the most popular name for either children or or dogs which I think it's up there now but um for Molly it was like you know because of bullseye in in Oliver Twist you know she was a bit of a gangster's mole so Mm. I love gangster films (laughs) you know I'm an East End girl I love the history of all of that that still remains around here so that was Molly and then Prudence well I love the name, you know, Susie and the Banshees, the Beatles. Great. It's a great song, dear Prudence. Mm-hmm. But of course, I had to be prudent with Prudence. And that's why I felt her, Prudence was the name for her, because I was going to be very prudent and learn from some mistakes. And she came from Germany, right? So you actually traveled to go get her. I did. I did. I did. Because everyone was trying to find me a miniature bull terrier puppy. In a way, perhaps I was a little bit bullied into bringing prudence into my life so soon after Molly. But I I agreed with all my peer pressure, really, that I was falling apart. And so everyone, I think, was trying to be helpful. Look, Anna, bring in another miniature bull terrier and and it's going to help you. (laughs) She laughs. So anyway, the only one that was available, the only litter that was in the whole of Europe at that time was in Germany. And um, I contacted this breeder who hadn't even advertised the puppies the night I emailed. They had just been born. So Prudence had been born for about two hours when her breeder that I'm still friends with, Jutta, got the email and said, I can't believe you've emailed. This is really spooky. Nobody knows they're even born. So that I felt well, I know a you're sign. a dog. I know you're a dog expert and everything, Anna, but I had no idea you could protect births of litters in other countries. That's amazing. Well, no. well this is it. That's why I thought <laughs> this was meant to be. This is Molly. She's come back. She's reborn as a tiny tricolor. There were only two girls in the litter. And and I chose Prudence. Anyway, so she was in Germany. So it gave me something to do. It gave me a focus, a hope that I could bring moles back, perhaps being absolutely honest about it. And it was fun to go over and visit. 
be surrounded by miniature bull terriers, meet all the puppies. I realized straight away, though, that Prudence wasn't quite the same as all the other puppies. <laughs> mm. She had an extra independence about her. She was by far the smallest, and to be fair, I think by far the prettiest puppy. Uh, she, she did her own things. All the other puppies would kind of run together and play together and be normal. In fact, when I first went into the room where the puppies were, there were seven puppies in that litter. Six puppies came hurtling towards me, loving me like the most exciting human being that they'd ever met in their entire life. The only puppy who didn't come rushing over was Prudence, mm. who rather decided to get my attention by trying to climb up this throw that was on the sofa to get onto the sofa and then approach me from a higher level to ambush me right so how clever was that but your initial relationship with her was a bit fraught and, and i remember when we went to joe's to record the christmas special and you were talking about losing molly and then prudence coming into your life and then she said you didn't like her at first and i was really taken aback uh, <laughs> to the point where actually i remember saying to you afterwards do you want me to cut that out that that was really shocking but it was true wasn't it and and you explained no that's that was, and mainly because you were really, as you kind of alluded there, that somehow prudence you would hope was the reincarnation of Molly or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I kind of hoped that, you know, I really believe in Buddhism and rebirth of energy. And it was just kind of what happened on the night that Molly died. So it was this great big black moth, right, hovering above the bed. I knew Molly was going to die that evening. Uh, Molly had communicated that to me. I know that sounds crazy and I knew and I was trying to fight it thinking, no, Anna, no, you're just, just thinking this. This isn't going to happen. It did happen and there was this moth flying above. I only mention this because it was strange and I remember thinking, oh, Gremlin will sort the moth out. Gremlin is my cat tomorrow morning. So it was really annoying me. It sounded like a hovercraft. This moth was huge. Joe arrives, as I mentioned, and by Molly who's on her daybed and Joe suddenly exclaims what is that moth and I went where is that moth and then then this huge helicopter of a moth flies out of my open window because it was very hot and I go there goes Molly mm. okay I mean I know probably people think I should be putting a straight jacket anyway so I felt that was but moths have a very short lifespan uh, as, as it goes. So the idea in my head was her energy was sucked up by the moth and then this moth, it would transfer and then hopefully transfer again and end up in prudence. Now, I'm not saying prudence, I'm not saying I didn't like prudence. Of course I did. Right. You know, how could you not like this amazing little creature who was tiny? She was like a little tricolor piglet, but she had a, a huge amount of energy that, I perhaps had forgotten. I mean, Molly, you know, also had a huge amount of energy. It's 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 what you get with the breed. Mm. But she'd she'd kind of grown out of it. Certainly in the last few years, I would have guess. Well, Molly, yeah. I yeah. mean, Molly, Molly'd grown out. Of, she grew out of it very quickly. She was able to calm down and settle, whereas Prudence didn't have this ability. Now, this is something still doesn't. Said, I've, uh, there's been well, no, many I know. times She's... we've been trying to record the podcast. We've have to we have to stop to. Uh, I know Prudence. I know, and she's five and a half. And this is something that owners of working cocker spaniels experience. So the other day, I, I actually recorded a podcast in Australia, Mike, actually, in the last week. And I described Prudence as being a working cocker spaniel in a miniature bull terrier's body that also has some kangaroo mixed in there as well. Because Prudence can jump. She can really jump. I couldn't believe it. She could jump onto this table in my kitchen and she, she could levitate. And I've written about it. Um, I've, I've had several columns in Your Dog magazine over the years talking about my dogs and I remember one whole column was about Prudence being able to levitate. Mm. So she, she, she was a problem because she could hurt herself. So I was constantly rushing around after Prudence. On the other hand, all my skills of training, I used that to focus her and to gain some control over what was basically a whirling dervish. She had so much energy to give, so much love to give, so much enthusiasm to give. She was just like a spinning top. And the only dog to date that several dog trainers have exclaimed on this, that when she meets other dogs, she is so excited, so full of joy, she will do cartwheels. Mm. I want to train her to do one on command, but that's a project that's ongoing. But she'll do cartwheels. She, you know, she's so excitable. 
learning to uh, sniff out truffles as well, which is in a, you mentioned before in the podcast. So just, um, I guess we should start wrapping up. Uh, yes. That's been quite a rich history with dogs. It's led to a lot of key moments and a career and an expertise. So let's kind of wrap up by kind of reviewing your sort of basic approach to dogs. A dog's life, when you came to me and said it's a kind of a holistic look at our companionship with, with dogs. So how, how would you kind of sum that up with the holistic, with raw feeding and your phrase that dogs just might save us from ourselves? Yeah, so that goes back to the fact that I think we domesticated dogs to fulfill uh, what we lack, unconditional love. And that's been the drive that's kept us going together for 30,000 years. And the fact that dogs and us, I think we're closer related than we we actually think we are. But yes, yeah, so a dog's life's really my journey. So it's looking at, at how I learned about dogs in the past, before dogs went to restaurants, before dogs were allowed in, in loads of pubs, before dogs were dressed in silly costumes, um, when dogs really had far more of a purpose in the country. You know, my dad, you know, grew up with gun dogs because that is because he did go shooting. I oh, know, I can't. This is why dad and I never really saw eye to eye a lot. However, yes, yeah, so it's really about understanding that a dog is a dog. And I think it's something we do need reminding of at the moment. The world that has gone so dog friendly is brilliant. But I think we must remember that it's not our right to own a dog. It is a privilege. Mm -hmm. And when you think of it in those terms, the term responsible dog ownership, which is a phrase that's been banded about since 1991, really, when the Dangerous Dogs Act was introduced. People have to be responsible dog owners. Well, what does that mean exactly? And I think a lot of it is to understand what makes dogs tick, how you can make them happy. And by doing that, you can have a much more fulfilled life together, not least being able to control your dogs when you're out, how training is so important. But training takes time, energy, and patience. Yeah. And a lot of people aren't up to it, don't, don't meet the bar. And that's why, of course, dogs in rescue are at the highest level ever, particularly after lockdown, as people got dogs in lockdown, didn't think it through, didn't realize the work involved. And they're being either abandoned to rescue, which is actually not a bad thing. They're going to somewhere safe and secure. But many are just being resold online like commodities. Yeah. And this this didn't exist before. And, and back in the day, of course, dog ownership was much less, much less than it is today. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think fashionable or designer breeds have a lot to answer for. Not the, not the dogs themselves, but people getting them as accessories and or possessions or a status symbol rather than, as we said at the, at the outset, really fully understanding what you're doing when you're taking on a dog because you're, you are responsible for another life, a sentient being who um, needs you to, to look out for them and, and not just putting out some food and taking it for a walk, but the companionship that they give you back unconditionally and all the sort of emotional support that they give you, they need it as well. And I think a lot of people don't really realize that because they've, they've gotten very, uh, they've gotten into dog ownership for the wrong reasons. And I hope that one of the reasons I got involved with you on A Dog's Life was, was to help to kind of educate people to, to, to really understand there's more to dogs than just feeding it and taking it for a walk. Absolutely, there is. And, and really, it, it all fits in with you know, emotional intelligence, which only a decade ago, scientists didn't believe that dogs had the mental capacity to have emotional intelligence, which goes yeah. back to Rupert Sheldrake, who has believed forever, because he grew up with animals, had a great interest in nature, that, of course, dogs have emotional intelligence and all this... The, stories from Lassie Come Home to The Incredible Journey, which all hinge back to Rupert as well, actually, um, in terms of sense of direction. But it, it's all this emotional intelligence and the sentient being. But unfortunately, until the law changes and dogs are not labelled as chattel, there's still a, lot, a long way to go, I'd say, Mike. But I hope my podcast is helping people see different perspectives to dogs. And I love all our guests. And I mean, what do you think was your favourite episode then so far, Mike? That's that's a hard one because I like different ones for different reasons. Rupert was certainly very interesting. That was the first one. I didn't really know what to expect from the podcast then. Um, I think uh, Dr. Claire Guest was one I was really proud of because it was very timely. It was the first, you know, we were very much at the onset of COVID and how the medical detection dogs were being trained to sniff out COVID. And I thought, wow, this is this is really 
interesting. This is not just, you know, talking about your, your dog and go for a walk. This is something really sort of meaty and topical and, and newsy about it. Um, but I've also really loved the, I guess, the artistic side, if you want to call it that. So dogs and literature, the palm dog episode. Uh, and even a couple of weeks ago with Simon uh, and his book on dogs, um, uh, it's hard to pick out an absolute favorite. I think they, for for a lot of reasons, they've all been really, really interesting. But I guess the one that probably had me welling up or put a tear in my eye was, was uh, Dave Wardell and Fabulous Finn. Yeah, I know. We love Dave. And he's obviously helped me train Prudence to sniff out truffles because she's not typical of her breed, as I explained. I thought she could be a great sniffer dog. And anyway, I was right. And she now is a sniffer dog to find truffles, which just entertains me hugely. And she is the first miniature bull terrier to do it, certainly in the UK. And I'd imagine globally, to be honest with you, because she's not she's not a normal miniature bull terrier. But something else as well, it's like you say, everybody thinks it's, it, it's part of a a dog to walk them. You know, I disagree there, Mike. The biggest shift I would say since I got Molly in 2002 is this launch of the massive service sector, which is dog walkers and creches, which really have never existed in dogdom until 2005 when it's when that that industry started in in the UK. Yeah. And and by that, I mean that there is more to just feeding and, and walking a dog, but I think there is a certain type of owner who delegated that task out to other people as well. I think, I think de- they yeah. delegate everything. They delegate yeah. the grooming. They de- delegate the nail yeah. clipping. They delegate the walking. But the risk you have of doing that is you're not spending any time with your dog. And no, unless you're, not, you spend... you're not really getting the joy from it as well. As I, as I said, one of my favorite thing to do is just when Billy and I are on the heel together, you know? Yes. And people aren't doing that. And it's a great shame because dogs like to be with their their, their owners. Yes. That's the whole point. And they're not perhaps enriched when someone's got nine dogs. It's impossible for one person to pay adequate attention to nine dogs all at once. Exactly. So anyway, there's regulation coming out about that. That will be a podcast um, coming up hopefully quite soon, Mike, as you know, we're going to yeah. talk about that and more regulation and accountability for this sector. So that's good. But yeah. I'd say that's been perhaps one of the most negative shift changes in the last few years. But it's not helping dog ownership in a nutshell. <laughs> no, no. And let's continue to try and um, educate people and dog lovers and, and people who are new to getting dogs alike. And I guess that's probably a good place to wrap up. I mean, we could probably go on forever. And I know you. I've talked. I've been on the phone with you before. It can go on forever. But I don't put a stop to it. <laughs> no, you're very patient, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's uh, well, I'm I'm. For one, I'm very proud of the podcast and it's been great working with you for the past year. And it's, I think it's really good to get your whole perspective just from your own experience from start to finish as it, rather than peppering it through interviews you have with other people. So thanks for joining me on A Dog's Life, Anna. Thanks, Mike, for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's the show for this week, Billy. What'd you think? Uh, yeah, who knew that Binksy had a first name and that it was Dexter? Well, we hope that you enjoyed the show as well and quite like the slight change in format. If you did, please make sure you subscribe to A Dog's Life with Anna Webb on wherever you listen to your podcast, as we're on every app available. And while you're there, please rate and review because it will help all the dog lovers find us. And once you subscribe, why don't you go back and check out all the episodes you might have missed? As we said in today's show, there's we've covered everything from medical detection dogs to dogs and literature and also that amazing first episode almost a year ago that kicked off this whole series with Rupert Sheldrake. A Dog's Life with Anna Webb was produced by me Mike Hansen for Pod People Productions and why don't you follow us to get all the latest updates on at Pod People UK and of course for Anna follow her on at Anna Webb Dogs or go to her new website annaweb.co.uk. We'll be back in your feed next Sunday with another edition of The Dog's Life, but this time with Anna Webb. Thanks for listening.